This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, um, and today I am joined um, by Gila Ashtor. Hello, Gila. Um, So today we are talking about Gila Ashtor and her new book, um, and I'll introduce her. So um, Gila is a critical theorist, psychoanalyst, and writer, and uh, teacher at Columbia University. Um, and today we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, Homo Psyche on Queer Theory and Erotophobia. Um, it was a great read, uh, super interesting, uh, brings up a lot of really intense questions. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk about it with you today. Um, so welcome to the show. And I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, so my first question for you is a little bit of personal background and um, so I just want to ask, you know, how did you come to, how did you come to thinking about this um, and thinking in general? Um, and how did this book come about? Yeah, um, thank you, first of all, Britt, for having me. Um, I've listened to many of your um, interviews and uh, find them always very interesting. Uh, so thanks for including me. Um, I, how did I, how did I come to this? You know, I, as I mentioned in the book, um, I, you know, I studied, um, I did my master's degree with Lauren Berlin and my PhD with Lee Edelman and, um, learned a lot firsthand, felt like I had a front row seat to a lot of, uh, these theories and how, um, who, some of who I think of as some of the you know best thinkers of some of this work have, have thought things through. Um, and it, I adored them and was fascinated by the work they were doing. And it also, for all that though, left me feeling like there were severe limitations to some of these ideas and that um, they sounded good or they were very appealing, but something was really missing. Um, And I think that the, the book is really an attempt to figure out what is that thing that's missing? What is not, Um, what is absent from some of these really stunning um, formulations. Um, And so I think it's, 
in some sense, a work of real uh, admiration for a lot of the thinkers that I engage with, but also a lot of conflict. Um, and I try not to, to shy away from that. I try to sort of um, embrace that because I, I do believe that's sort of the spirit of queer theory anyway. Um, and I wanted to push the field to, um, you know, push the field with me to wonder about what, what might be missing and how could we make things work differently, have new thoughts. Yeah. I think one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is the, the kind of cursory, obviously history of queer theory that you give, um, especially because it shows how I think internally divided and critical queer theory always has been and always will be almost as like a constitutive part of what it is because uh, I don't know. So I'm like, I'm an English literature person and reading queer theory, like queer theory as a discipline is just made of so many different people from so many different backgrounds. So it's, it's really such an interesting and dynamic space to think in. Um, And so I, I, your interventions are, are, you know, you're making an intervention, but that's part of queer theory. Yeah, I think it's interesting you, you say that about the history. I, I think that one of the effects of being, a, as I said uh, about my own history of being a student of it, is you sort of don't have a concept of the history of the field when you're sort of studying it. You're like, this is just the field. <laughs> this is just mm-hmm. the world. There is no history. It's just always been like this, and it will always be like this. And I think um, part of what I find very encouraging is more recent work really in the past 10 years to try to take a to take a little perspective on the field and wonder about like is it does it need to be this way what can we do that will still keep it queer theory but that can not be so wedded to some of its more popular formulations about itself um you know i think that article in differences that i cite a lot about um, anti-normativity and the sort of frustration with how routine that's become is one major emblem of that um, kind of wish to push the field a little bit um, Mm -hmm. while still keeping it queer theory. But I think that's part of the question. Mm -hmm. So I think before we get into a deeper discussion, um, I, in all of my podcast episodes, I think I, I like to start with the title because, you know, the title is something that's so important. Um, so the I when I first read it, uh, Homo Psyche, um, I'm wondering how you read it or how you would propose to read it. Uh, because on the one hand, you can think of it as like the psyche of the homo. And that's obviously something that you're doing um, and thinking about the psychology, the psychoanalytic dimension. Um, but I'm also, I also read it immediately as kind of this alternative to homo sapiens. Um, So there is this kind of, I think a bridge that you're building between kind of a question of subjectivity um, that psychoanalysis is trying to always get at, as well as something specifically queer or homo about all of these issues. Maybe can you just say what how you're thinking of yeah, it? Yeah, I think I think you said it perfectly. I think that's exactly right. I think um, you know partly. I think there's a um, it's trying to do two things at once. The title. I think there's an an internal division in the field between those who want queerness to represent the sort of end of subjectivity in some sense, and it's like beyond the the human, beyond subjectivity, even beyond consciousness. Um, so. Partly it's 
uh, repudiation of that. And it's saying, no, like you're, no, we, we need the psyche for queerness. We're not getting rid of it. That doesn't work. It's just, it's not going to check out um, in some of the ways I try to show. But I think secondly, and more importantly, it is um, to what you're saying. I think it's an attempt to insist on my part that the psyche is sexual, that the, the psyche, you know, at its fundamental core, the way it's constructed is sexual. And that's where Laplanche comes in for me um, as I see him intervening in psychoanalysis to try to really make that argument that even psychoanalysis um, does not really take that far enough, does not. It's, it's not like there's um, a field that's doing it and queer theory is behind. It's actually a genuinely difficult thing to, to um, keep in one's head in a certain sense. And so I think that's the nature of what I'm trying to say with that. So we'll definitely get to the sexual. Uh, I think that's such a, that's kind of the big question of the text. Um, and before we do that, I want to move to the to the um, the subtitle of the book, maybe to give us a little more of a context um, for listeners. So it's on queer theory and erotophobia. Can you kind of sketch out maybe when you say queer theory, what does this mean, and how should we think about? it as a, as a discipline or as an institutional uh, body? And then what is erotophobia? Yeah. Um, I think of, you know, queer theory is, is many different things to many different people. And it's, I I'm certainly would, am not interested in like, this is the one true queer theory versus the others. Um, but the, definitely the tradition that I'm um, working in, the tradition within queer theory is much more, the version of it that's interested in sexuality as it pertains to subjectivity and to consciousness, I would say. Um, you know, I think of that as really being traced to um, Sedgwick, maybe most powerfully. She's maybe the figure for me that I think is most um, interested in these, in, in molding queer theory in this way. Um, so I would say, I would say that's the version of it that um, is that the book is engaged in. And I think, you know, erotophobia I'm, I'm defining as um, a kind of denial of sexuality as, um, and here I'm defining what I mean by sexuality as sexuality as intrusive, intersubjective and exogenous. And so I think that how I'm defining sexuality is very important to the word erotophobia um, because it, it doesn't mean that, um, it's, it's a certain redefinition of sexuality that I'm trying to get at in order to then explain why I think a lot of the field's formulations are erotophobic. Um, but I don't think it's in any obvious way. Um, and I think that's why two things need to happen. I think first, sexuality needs to be redefined. That's where Laplace comes in for me. And once sexuality is redefined, then we can see where our thinking about it is erotophobic. What, um, yeah. Yeah, so the, the erotophobic thesis, I think was something that was so interesting because it was so non-intuitive mm -hmm. um, in the sense that when we think of queer theory, we're thinking of, you know, like a very sexual um, or like really interrogating the sexual and what mm -hmm. place it has in, uh, in the subject, in the individual, as well as in societies. Um, and I, don't, I think like that's how we want to think about it, but you, yeah. you've shown so much through this book that there are there are ways that 
this thinking is not actually what is happening or that your definition of erotophobic is, is what's, what is coming out in a lot of these theories. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, later, but you've brought up La Planche a few times now, and I think that is the grounding, um, the grounding figure, your primary interlocutor. Um, so can you, just as another contextualizing gesture, um, maybe explain a little bit about La Planche and his thinking, um, especially in relation to psychoanalysis in how, like when someone says psychoanalysis, you're, you're going to think of Freud, but a lot of other people are going to think of Lacan as well. How does, how does La Planche come into a constellation with those two as kind of disrupting this, this normative view of psychoanalysis? Yeah, I, I think, you know, just for some some very basic history, you know, Laplanche was a um, student of Lacan's and also um, an analysand uh, of Lacan. And he really, um, at the beginning of his career, was very much um, devoted himself to um, a very close reading of Freud. He didn't really criticize Freud that much and he didn't criticize Lacan that much. Um, and there was a you know very well known conference at Bonneval in 1959, I believe, um, when Laplace and Leclerc really challenged Lacan in a very important way. Lacan was furious; he stormed out, um, and that was sort of maybe the beginning of this break. Um, and afterwards, <clears throat> later, more like 60s, 70s, and even more so, increasingly, Laplace and you know 70s, 80s. Um, and afterward, up until, uh, you know, the 90s, uh, he died in 2012, uh, really became increasingly critical, uh, both of Freud and of Lacan. He didn't um, formulate his criticism of Lacan in a very um, comprehensive way. It's more uh, embedded in some of these texts. And he uses a lot of Lacan while at the same time challenging him. Um, uh, and in terms of his relationship to Freud, you know, Laplanche very much considers himself um, both faithful and unfaithful to Freud. He really believes that Freud had an intuition about sexuality, which was correct. But then Freud and many analysts after him sort of, he uses the term going astray. They, they lost their way. They thought they were, they set out to analyze sexuality. They set out to grasp sexuality, but lo and behold, instead, they turned it into an instinct, or they turned it into the environment, or they they, they ended up going down all these paths, um, because it's actually very hard to grasp um, sexuality in its in its form. And so he's a, he's a very um, unique figure. There's no um, school of Laplanchians. He also writes very little about um, the clinical domain. He doesn't really write about patients. Um, he's much more a philosopher by training and an analyst. Um, I think he sees himself much more as a, a critic that is trying to correct a lot of these mistakes that psychoanalysis keeps making. Um, and so, first of all, with respect to queer theory, that's a long way of saying that, you know, queer theory is not alone in sort of going, uh, starting out with a wish to talk about sexuality or be, um, the discipline that is most 
uh, interested in interrogating it, psychoanalysis sees itself that way too, in many ways, and certainly sees itself uh, as being very brave in some of its formulations about the psyche. And yet, I think, according to Laplanche about psychoanalysis, and for me, a similar thing with queer theory, that there's a way that this keeps getting lost. There's a way that the impulse to really understand this keeps um, go, going astray. Um, yeah, for, for both fields, queer theory and psychoanalysis, but this book is really about how queer theory does that. Um, yeah, and I mean, maybe you can say a little more now um, to kind of go back to an earlier point and, and something that you, you bring up throughout the book is this relation between queer theory and psychoanalysis. Um, because I think, I mean, there was a huge boom of thinking about it, but then it kind of seems like people want to distance themselves from psychoanalysis um, as, as a way of thinking about the queer subject. Um, like, how do you see this history? And like, what is, why bring, what's the gesture to bring it back? And, and why in a specifically Laplanchian in mode? Yeah, it's interesting. I was on a panel um, last month with um, Elizabeth Wilson, and she was complaining that um, graduate students these days are just so anti-psychoanalytic. They come in and they're like, "Ugh, we're done. We like don't care anymore. It's already we don't need it. It's irrelevant." And and they have these ideas about what's like. And she's like, "Ah, like I spend the whole semester trying to get them to like interrogate their aversion to it or understand where this came from, and it feels kind of hopeless because they're just so settled in their." you know, distance from psychoanalysis. I mean, I guess one question I have even before answering that is I wonder if that resonates with you. Is that something you see? Like, I'd be curious to hear your, your experience of it, actually. Um, yeah, I, I can kind of completely agree with that. Um, so I, I, um, I mean, I'm a graduate student doing psychoanalysis, and I feel like a lot of my colleagues um, are kind of, I mean, I, I think part of it is due to this whole post-critical turn yeah. um, and this idea that, you know, psychoanalysis is kind of this dead subject and, and it doesn't, it's been done uh, and we have new things to say. Um, but I do think a lot of people come at it not actually having ever read Freud or Lacan or even, or definitely not Lacan yeah. or even mm -hmm. other psychoanalytic thinkers. So there's a whole, like, I don't know, once you get told once by some, I don't know, some professor that Freud was a misogynist or whatever, I feel like there's this allergic reaction to psychoanalysis when, you know, psychoanalysis is so huge. Like there's yeah. so many different ways to go into it. It's not just Freudian, it's not just Lacanian. You can, there's so much to do. And I think, I think a lot of people just, just don't have that or, yeah. or don't know. Um, yeah. So that's my experience. That's your, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Elizabeth Wilson was talking about Tompkins. You know, she she just wrote a book on Tompkins. And she was talking about affect and Tompkins and um, saying, like, here's another way to do psychoanalysis. Like, there are so many ways. And Tompkins had his own very contentious relationship to Freud and to Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, so the fact that they would be in the same category is itself interesting. But, yes, I mean, I think in some sense my question always for, for this disregard of psychoanalysis is what do you use otherwise like you know Laplanche is such a critic of Freud I mean he's unrelenting about what Freud gets wrong so I don't know who 
I guess I'm, I'm not in particular like sympathetic to people that are trying to bring back Freud in some originary form. I don't even know what that would look like. Like, well, I don't, I'm not even sure what version of psychoanalysis is defensible, you know, um, in its earliest formulations, it's all been so critiqued and overturned anyway, um, that we're, we're sort of on very different ground than we were, you know, in the 1920s. So I'm, you know, but, but I'm not sure. I always wonder for the people that don't want psychoanalysis because they're tired of thinking about the psyche or the subject in a certain way. Well, then what? Like, what do we use to think about the experience? Yeah, I have. I'm like, I'm open. Like, I'm listening. You know, <laughs> like, what? I, I think it's a question. I I don't know what you what you find. In, in yeah, your... I mean, I I have that same question. I think a lot of it is. I find something, especially in literary studies, is people who are really critical of psychoanalysis want to view texts like completely divorced from a subject um, and are very into that mode of reading that that is like, I just want to look at the aesthetic object and like, what does it say? But I, I think, I think, you know, an aesthetic object not like always comes out of some kind of person or like a subject or something with a consciousness and an unconsciousness. And I think that's always a question that you have to ask. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I always am wondering like, where do you, how does this ever relate back to the fact that this was, this is a written text. It's, it didn't just like come out of the, the ocean or like right. land on the earth. Right. Um, and yeah. I, so that's my, I have the same questions you do. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think, you know, I think, um, I, I think what would be interesting is um, to sort of really push psychoanalysis to, to, to be more attuned to the complexity of the subject. I think there is a certain fatigue with, um, I certainly felt it with a kind of like rote applied Lacanian reading of things. It's like, you already know um, what you're looking for in advance. And I, there is something that can be very tiring uh, about that if it's done in ways that are unoriginal perhaps, but mm -hmm. there are so many arguments about what Lacan means anyway, and how to use Lacan. And these are not really settled debates. It's such a, it's such an alive and dynamic field that it's, um, it's, it feels like there's so much more room to uh, think about um, the subject in more challenging ways. And I, I think even within post-critique or some of, you know, I know, you know, there are ways that psychoanalysis is seen as utterly complicit in this suspicious mode of reading. But I think, um, I think there are, I think I'm thinking of like someone like Amanda Anderson, who, you know, is then turning to Winnicott or Michael mm -hmm. Snedeker who's turning to, to Winnicott. Um, I love his work. And I, you know, I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of room. I think, um, you know, someone like Amy Allen who writes more in critical theory as opposed to queer theory is really interested in Melanie Klein. Um, I mean, you know, I think people are, are really newly sort of getting interested in psychoanalysis, but I, but from other directions, you know, because I think there is a felt need for some like new material. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think also I, exactly what you were saying, I think with 
I feel a lot of people think psychoanalysis is is has become a really rote method, um, especially in like this pop cultural way of thinking. Like when you read a text, who is the father and who is the son, and he just wants to mur. And it's I think, I mean, certainly you can look for those things, but I. I mean, I, I'm the same. I, I, get, that's, I find that so boring. I think there's something else that you want to be looking for. Um, and I think psychoanalysis is a way of giving us a language to look for different things and allow us to be surprised by attacks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think we could think of like what you and I are saying as a kind of um, sort of more historical explanation or, you know, um, contextual explanation. But I think you could also analytically, I, I'm sure people would say, maybe Laplace himself would say that it's a defense against sexuality, that in fact, people are tired of um, dealing with psychoanalysis, because they're just tired of hearing about the queerness as having anything to do with sexuality. And I, you know, I'm of two minds about that. I think we haven't always been um, talking about sexuality in a certain way. So I'm not sure we could be defending against it. But you know, like, that's part of my critique. But I do think there there did get to be something very, um, even the way psychoanalysis was used, even by people who were trying to really reinvent the field. And, you know, I think of Lee Edelman here. I think of um, Bersani. I think of um, even Cedric herself, who, you know, I, I adore all of these thinkers. But I think there's a way that the the things get away from us. I think there's a way that these ideas about sexuality and about the psyche have a way of turning into very um into into concepts that are either very abstract and very far away from um the erotic dimension of it I and mean, i think maybe because it's actually very hard to think about those things or focus on these things or as literary theorists we don't want to do it all the time either like maybe it's just um i think in some sense um you know queer theory also has a very political dimension. It's also interested in social change. It's also interested in formulating versions of the subject that can be seen as emancipatory. That means that you kind of want, you want a theory that lends itself to those ideas. Um, you know, Lee's use of, of Lacan is really so much tied up with, with the political purpose he wants is his, his own political agenda for queer theory and what he wants it to represent. Um, mm -hmm. And naturally, I feel like that's that's at the origin of the field. It's always been that. Um, but I think that means that it could that could also constrain us in our thinking if we're constantly trying to think about the only kind of psychoanalysis that will translate well into a certain kind of political project. Um, so I try to focus a lot more on just the the theory of subjectivity, the theory of mind that we're developing. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good segue into thinking into thinking this. And um, especially because I think in one way, I think a lot of the allergic reaction almost to psychoanalysis is because of the question of the sexual. And I think a lot of people either don't want to to argue for the for this kind of primacy or or really original status of the sexual. Um, I think, you know, Heidegger has this question, like we've forgotten the question of being, but I think we could also say, you know, we've forgotten the question of the sexual and it always needs to be reinvigorated. And I think that's something that queer theory always does. Um, and says like, this, this is such a, this is a defining part of our lives. We have to keep thinking it. Um, but I think it's all, there's also a big failure of people to see how the sexual can relate to things that are ostensibly not sexual. Um, like the gathering of bodies in a political space or even just the political in general. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you can say more about like what is Laplanche doing with the sexual? Because he has a very different view of this, um, of sex, sexuality, the sexual, etc. And maybe, uh, like, how is this his specific torque able to help us think about the erotophobia and, like, how to move past that and how to kind of get beyond this phobic reaction we have to the erotic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the major points, if not the major point, that Laplanche repeats and repeats and repeats and that I try to to do in my own critique is that the sec that sexuality cannot be dissociated from otherness and from the actual other person. Um, and what he means by that is a very pointed critique of, of Lacan. I think maybe, well, Freud and Lacan may be equally, but I think he's very aware and he's very in conversation with um, Lacan's discourse for obvious reasons. And, you know, I think there's a tendency within psychoanalysis that queer, there's a tendency within psychoanalysis, you know, that queer theory has in turn really replicated in its own formulations. And that tendency is to try to think about sexuality somehow divorced from, from the actual other person um, in our early lives. Um, And Laplanche is saying, guess what? We only get to be sexual beings because we were taken care of as infants by other sexual beings. We wouldn't be sexual otherwise. And we have, since we have no way of developing without getting the help of caregivers, mothers, fathers, it doesn't really matter who, he says it could be a clone, but we, we simply biologically cannot take care of ourselves. We're born prematurely compared to every other species. We need someone to take care of us. The fact that we need someone to take care of us means that once a caregiver enters the scene, that caregiver has a sexuality as compared to us. 
we are kind of like flailing, helpless. We have instincts, we have needs, but we don't have, we're not born with a sexuality. But in the encounter with an actual other person who does have a sexuality, we have to sort of like very quickly, very frantically try to make sense of what is being thrown at us from this adult being. Um, And that experience, that need to frantically make sense of things is in itself what establishes a sexuality in us. So it's exactly that, it's precisely that move um, to to make sense of the encounter of another person's sexuality that instantiates a sexuality in us. Um, And so lo and behold, like we end up sexual and we end up with a sexuality and there's no way around that. But that, so that would be like a mini version of what Laplanche is saying, but he's also saying that Freud has a tendency to end up talking about sexuality as though it's some like, it's uh, as though it's something we're really born with by virtue of being humans. It's some id-like force. It is the unconscious. It's just there. It's phylogenetically transmitted. It's, you know, um, coming from our bodies. Laplanche is like, that's nonsense. That's instinct you're talking about. Sexuality could not be automatic and inherent that way. Then he turns to Lacan and he says, you know, Lacan keeps saying that we are sort of, we have an unconscious by virtue of language. But for Laplanche, language sounds very abstract. What language doesn't give us a sexuality. It's language spoken by another person who has a sexuality. It's not just language. And so what he's consistently trying to correct for is this very subtle tendency. And I, I do think it's sort of subtle, but it ends up having quite big ramifications. The subtle tendency to sort of dissociate um, the emergence of sexuality from the actual other people it emerges from. And he's saying, if we keep closing those, those like openings, you know, those like, it keeps happening where sexuality in essence slips out of the equation. Um, And that's because the other person gets lost in, in these formulations. And so if we keep bringing the other person back into it, uh, we're going to, that's the way we're going to get closer to hanging on to what we mean by sexuality. Um, And so I think, you know, to go back to your point, um, your question about the social element of this, I think one thing we could say is that it's not only difficult to to talk about sexuality or to think about the ways that sexuality is everywhere, as you say, in um, sexual objects or not, but it's also very difficult to talk about and think about other people as really impacting our consciousness. I think that is very uncomfortable. I, you know, I think it's I think we like to believe that we're more autonomous and self-enclosed than we actually are. And I think that's one of the major things that sexuality presses against or, you know, pushes against, um, tries to overturn. So I think that's why Laplanche would characterize the constant losing sight of sexuality as a recentering. Uh, we're back to being just our, our like neat, enclosed, self-sufficient um, selves in a certain way. Um, and I, I think that's what, that's the benefit of, of losing sexuality in the way that it keeps getting lost. I don't know if that kind of answers your question or trying. Yeah. 
Um, so on uh, in the book on page eighteen, uh, you have this formulation that I'll I'll just read because I I really liked it. Um, let's see. Um, if, however, sexuality can be enlarged beyond genitality and situated according accordingly in the context of biopsychical development and relationality, sexuality leads us away from the familiar illusions about our own independence and toward the discovery of the other in us. To wit, man is not only no, not only no longer at the center of his own universe, but he is not even the primary source of his own sexuality. And this made me think of, you know, Freud has famous uh like the the blows to human narcissism when he talks about you know the copernican revolution we're not the center of the universe the darwinian revolution we're not the center of like life um and then his blow which is like we're not even the center of ourselves and then you know laplanche gives us another blow that our, our sexuality something so something so central to the questions of psychoanalysis and and being a subject is not like we are not even at the center of our own sexuality, um, and I think that that is an anxious or an anxiety producing idea. Like I, it's scary to think that you are so still independent or dependent upon other people. Right. Yeah. Even when you're grown up in your sexual relations. Right. I I, I exactly right. I think about you know um, my patients, or I think about my own experience in in analysis where, you know, you're, I, you know, I hear all the time from patients like, Oh, come on. I can't still be affected by that. I'm like, you know, 30 something. And it's like, uh huh. Yes. And like, why would you think you wouldn't be? And it's like, you know, this frustration at, at feeling like even this thing, which is most intimate, which is most feels like me, this thing that is my desire would somehow be informed or shaped or driven by, um, other people is I think it's very frustrating. And I think um, kind of really, as you said, a blow to our own narcissism, to our own grandiosity, to our own self-sufficiency, to our, to imagining that, um, that, that we're like this. I mean, I I think it would be interesting to think about queer theory's own relationship to sexuality in those terms. Like is, is queer theory itself as much as, you know, I think you called it um, like an erotoskeptic or as much as it's trying to erotophilic, as much as queer theory is trying to put sexuality front and center, is it also defending itself against the notion that sexuality would not be something we have total control over? Um, and why shouldn't it defend itself against that? Like why would queer theory transcend those anxieties in some sense? Um, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I think this, this is very related to a question of queer theory and as well as psychoanalysis's um, social function or political function or, or maybe an ethical function as well, that there's this opening up to the other that, that has to be kind of avowed. You have, like, you have to say there are others. Um, And that's actually where I derive some form of my, whatever constitutes myself. Um, I don't know, maybe if you have like thinking on that, because I think that is such an ethical force within the book that, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking like Sartre, hell is other people, but like, you have to, you have to do it because you can't just be a hermit. Like you do have to see other people in, in so many different ways. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think that's where, you know, Laplanche never tires of saying like, 
you know, it does like you, you literally functionally can, you, you cannot develop without the encounter with another person. And this is something that Laplace does not think about or talk about. Um, but something very, that I'm interested in this sort of separate vein is, you know, something that's coming out of affect theory and affect theory by affect theory. Again, another big field that means like 10,000 different things <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> but I mean, um, you know, I'm thinking of affect theory in this vein specifically as it emerges in like, you know, neurobiology and, um, you know, Adrian Johnston has written, I, I love, he's written a, a lovely book on um, affect theory in relationship to Lacan, but early affect theory, more like the Damasio guys, um, th- things like this, that kind of affect theory um, for a moment. Um, but, you know, affect theory is, is sort of at the forefront of recognizing the extent to which our development hinges, uh, as our, the development of our minds and our bodies hinges on our interaction with our caregivers. So we literally will not develop um, in the way that we need to um, without those interactions. I mean, this is like a huge revolution. This is like saying, it's, you know, and we talk about humbling. It's like, you you know, you don't just grow automatically. You, you don't just grow by yourself. Um, you grow because someone is taking care of you badly, well, um, consistently, all those things are, are sort of a different realm, but someone somewhere is taking care of you in some way, or you would not develop. Um, and I think that the fact of that, that I think, you know, sort of is, is emerging out of, out of, um, some of this affect stuff. Um, and it was earlier sort of beginning to emerge out of attachment theory, but I think attachment theory really had its own problems. And so it couldn't fully develop in the way that it needed to. Um, we could develop this idea in the way that you need to, but now what we're seeing is increasingly clear that we do need other people and we need them to, for our own development. And so, you know, even when you think you're being a hermit, even when you're saying fuck the social, even when you're saying like, I want nothing to do with it. Okay. But you, to get here, you, you did engage with the social, like you, you can get out of, you can try to get out of it at some point later in some way, maybe, but you can't escape the social that's already in you. You, you can't escape that. That got in there before you had a chance to do anything about it. I think that's the kind of cruelty of, of, of it, uh, if there is one, um, you know, yeah. maybe what makes it kind of unbearable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, especially, so I, I used to be so obsessed with queer theory, and then I kind of lost it. But then maybe this is bringing me back. But I think one of the things that I really loved about queer theory, when I was reading it as an undergrad, was like, a lot of it was just talking about the fact that you are you are always bound up with these relations that are weird and it is weird to be with other people, but it's not something that you can ever get around or get beyond. And even if you do try to get beyond, it's because you, you hated it. So you have to have it. Um, and it makes me think of this, um, this C.A. Conrad, um, a poet who, who has this quote in some poem or some book, I can't remember. But this idea that, you know, like, like dying on your deathbed alone, or like, I've had to do everything alone in my life is just some kind of romantic fantasy of kind of the the Bildung of the individual, because it's like, what the hell? You not only like you were you raised by people, or like you had friends or whatever, even if you are alone every day of your life, do you go to the store? Do you go to wherever? Do you have, like, just the idea of other people kind of allows you to live. Um, 
so there's there's this huge interdependence and i'm one like it creates the sexual so i'm wondering how like the sexual is part of our like our normal life when we're not thinking about the sexual um and how that that can take us beyond kind of this this like i i don't want anything to do with it reaction well, I think I'm not sure if when you're saying that part of what turned you off from those kinds of thoughts, I it had to do with the determinism. Like, was that partly what you're saying that it, it just felt kind of deterministic in its own way? That if everything was um, already one is so um, interdependent and could do nothing about it, that as a result there was little freedom or little room for freedom. Is that partly what you're saying? Um, oh, I was always, always about that. I just, I turned away from queer theory for other reasons. But one of the things that I, I think I, that has fundamentally shaped my, like, my ethics and like looking at literature is how it it was so insistent on these social relations and how there is no such thing as like a monad. And even in like, like a, even if you do have like this quote unquote heterosexual pairing, like it is still always founded on how it relates to other people like this fantasy of just being able to be alone is is exactly that it's a fantasy and I think relating to like queer modalities of life or queer existence it's just like this whole not just an avowal of it but like a complete acceptance and like leaning into the fact that there are different relations and that you have relations and that you can't not that's right yeah And I think, um, you know, I think that there is really an attempt in in much of queer theory, sometimes deliberately, to get away from that relational dimension of it. Or alternatively, I think of someone like Lynn Huffer, of an attempt to, you know, follow what she thinks Foucault is insisting on, which is a kind of uh, bodies and pleasures, as you know, and Bersani does this a little bit too. I mean, for what it's worth, I think, Foucault is way more ambivalent about um, psychoanalysis uh, than um, some people would like to think. I think he's all over the place in terms of really being committed to um, a new version of sexuality, a new version of consciousness and subjectivity and sort of, you know, in constant debate um, about that. You know, Joel Whitebook has um, has done a great critique of Foucault from a while back, um, which is very interesting in this regard. And um, I don't, and anyway, the point is I don't think Foucault is nearly as, um, as uh, consistent or single-minded in his relation to psychoanalysis as people make it sound, but there are people who use him to say that um, wouldn't it be great if we could have like a mode of relationality that was like surface oriented and not too deep and not too engaged with unconscious forces and, not too um, driven by sort of antagonisms and conflict, but was more just sensational or sensations or, you know, I don't, I don't know bodies and pleasures. Um, You know, I I don't think, uh, but there's a real appeal to some of these ideas. I think partly because they seem like an escape from um, a mode of relationality that is a lot messier and messier because it involves like psyches and bodies that are psychological um um and i i think there's a real wish to get away from that i think um you see that across the field um yeah might go back to our earlier point about the field but yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that's this whole idea, I think, is kind of part of your last chapter on, on queer relationality. Um, and I want to I wanna turn to a different chapter, which was, I thought, a, a, a great one. Um, <laughs> I hope everybody who reads this thinks the same thing, uh, because I, it was very interesting and an intense read. Um, it was the one on psychology as ideology light, Butler and the trouble with gender theory. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more, because... Um, like what you're doing in this chapter, um, because I think what defines gender theory and and sexuality theory, I think a lot of today is this Butlerian notion or like everything that we know about Butler, even though I think, you know, also most people either haven't read Butler in like 10 years and are talking about Butler or like just have not read or only read Gender Trouble and then didn't actually read Undoing Gender to get the what was actually happening, but what are you trying to make in this, in this section? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really about um, this way that, you know, Butler, who, um, you know, in my reading is very interested in psychoanalysis is sort of a, like always using psychoanalysis um, to think through the subject. In fact, had a, well-known um, debate with Laplanche when he was in the in the U.S. Um, at some point in the early 2000s, I believe. Um, and so, you know, I, I, she's definitely someone who wants to engage with with this work. And I I think she, her writing on gender is a good example of the way in which, even without intending it, or even with the best intentions, um, in her, in her formulations, sexuality turns into this this just very familiar version of ideology um, through Althusser, through Foucault, where um, it's sort of um, been evacuated of its of, of any sense of how of a psychology would actually work. And what she's meaning by psychology is just um, what is sort of like personal about you um, and not necessarily reducible to the state or to culture writ large. And I think partly what I'm trying to push on is, okay, that's a very impoverished view of the psyche that you're using. I mean, you're, you're essentially to Butler, you know, you're using a view of the psyche that doesn't have its own mode of functioning, that isn't driven in its own way. That's just a sort of like empty vessel for the deposits of, of sociality. And I think that's a kind of, I mean, frankly, that's a kind of supposed impoverished view of, of um, social as well, but it certainly doesn't work for how we would think about the psyche. Um, and I, so I think that really gets lost um, in her work. And I, not that, I think she's really trying to theorize in some sense the psyche, but I think, um, I think all these people are, frankly, I think that's why I chose them. I, you know, would, to me, it would not be very interesting to sort of choose someone who is not interested in psychoanalysis. To me, these are the people that are the most interested in psychoanalysis, that are using it the best, um, as far as I'm concerned. And yet, like, how does this happen? How, how, how does the psyche turn into kind of like an empty an empty vessel, as it were? Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm well, curious that, yeah. Well, I, I want to ask the question because there is this, like, psychological view, but then... I mean, one term that psychoanalysis always is using is metapsychological. So, so can you kind of talk about what this difference is and how maybe these, this different topography 
that metapsychological or metapsychological analysis gives us to talk about things because it, it is something that is so different than just a psychological analysis. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to and metapsychology is a very contested term within mm-hmm. psychoanalytic theory. Um, you know, it doesn't really exist in the French. Um, they kind of just do psychoanalytic theory, um, but in the U.S. especially it's a lot more contested because you had really in the late eighties, a bunch of theorists who said there is no, this word has no meaning. When we're in, when we're using psychoanalysis, we're just always using Freudian psychoanalysis. And you had some other thinkers who were like, um, okay, but if that's how we're using it, then we never have a way of critiquing Freud. <laughs> so like mm-hmm. we need to have a realm of theory that is sort of separate from Freud, that is just the realm of psychoanalytic theory. Um, and Laplanche has something to say about this because um, I think he was, you know, very attuned to what the debates that were going on um, in the U.S. at that time between the different movements of psychoanalysis. Um, but to me, metapsychology is an, an indispensable term. I think you need to have a realm of analysis that allows you to decide um, what works and what doesn't work for psychoanalytic theory and, and to apply it um, for the purposes of close reading. I mean, I think what you, what you said earlier about, um, you know, everyone assumes psychoanalysis is Freud and Lacan. And I think partly because there's very little sense in our analyses that we're using a particular psychoanalytic template. Partly what I encounter a lot of, I felt this a lot in graduate school, was just like, this is, um, I used to get into arguments with um, with Lauren about this. Like, it was it was very much just, this is the psyche. And I'm like, okay, no, that's the Lacanian psyche. That's not the psyche. I don't know what the psyche is, but there are, surely are other ways. And, you know, there's a way that it has been, um, we are always using maybe Freud or Lacan without any without any distance or any way to critique those concepts. So I'm really just trying to introduce a method of analysis that allows us to, to critique it. And, and by breaking it down in that way to identify where, um, where things maybe go astray or, Oh, could we make a substitution there? Is it this Lacanian notion of misrecognition that's getting us? Okay. So then like, what if we swap that out? Would it, would this work better Would this, elucidate something more um instead of it being um sort of to me all all together um in in, in a very incoherent way i don't know does that make sense i I think yeah yeah it does and i think that was something that i don't know as someone who hasn't read i'm not as familiar with la planche but i i think um you know meta like freud's using metapsychology um metapsychology in the German, it's like, it does, it is its own thing. It's not just psychology. Um, and he's, the idea that you're looking at the structure of the theory itself. Um, and I think what's so interesting and something that you bring out is that you don't have to take what you are given. You are allowed to move out and find something else if what if it doesn't work for you. And I think that's something that, you know, when people think of psychoanalysis, I think they don't realize that you are allowed to, to think differently, um, especially um, I, given the idea that, you know, Lacan's big thing is return to Freud, that maybe, I mean, anytime you work with psychoanalysis, you 
you in a sense you are returning to Freud but that doesn't mean that the return has to be kind of this like faithful or loving return to the father it can be like this critical I'm coming home and I'm yelling at my dad kind of thing like it can be something else you can overturn um and maybe like this is the the deconstructionist in me but like you can go back and then completely change whatever you've been given or you can substitute it and do something completely else um but I think the category of the metapsychological is helpful to understand that this is a theory this is something that's constructed and it doesn't have to be exactly exactly this i think that's i think it's a lovely way of putting it i think i would hope that you know someone reading this would feel encouraged to um to find the kind of theory that makes sense for them and if they're frustrated with you know lacan and freud or the people that are using Lacan and Freud, or the readings that are coming up with, like, you know, to sort of look into um, alternatives or critique those modes. These are, you know, um, Laplanche makes this lovely distinction between metapsychology and, like, the mytho-symbolic order. And what he means by that is that we are always interpreting things, um, and we're always coming up with, he calls it the sexual theories of children, which I love. And he, he's, we're always, as this originates in childhood, trying to explain why something is happening and what it means. And so that we're doing all the time. But he says Freud makes the mistake of sometimes confusing that activity with metapsychology. So Freud thinks, oh my God, I came up with the Oedipus complex this is actual theory. And Laplace is like, no, Freud, that was just your way of explaining something you didn't understand. Like, A for effort, great job, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And we should only count as metapsychology the theories that check out um, based on the standards of like theory building. And so we should be able to make some distinction between our own interpretations, which have their own function in, in our lives and our work, versus what we should count as sort of laws of, of the psyche or principles of, of mental functioning. And I, I think that distinction is very liberating. I find it liberating. I find like, oh, thank God, because some of these things are just, they're terrible. They're all, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be committed to some of these complexes. Like, you know, and I felt like I was yeah. ambivalent um, and am very ambivalent about so much of psychoanalysis. Um, and so I need a way to navigate that ambivalence, you know, and I I think I'm hoping this is one way to navigate that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So you just bring up this uh, idea of, of like we're constantly interpreting and like, you know, we're like psychoanalysis, if anything is a theory of reading. Um, And I want to ask just because I, this was what something that I was really interested in was, how like this idea of queerness as a hermeneutic um i don't know can you open that up um because i i don't i think like sedgwick talking about like if you're not reading this you're like not reading at all and i think it is something that's like psychoanalysis is a form of reading and and queer theory does so many different readings not necessarily on literary texts always but like a way of looking. And I think how does queerness become this meaning making or reading generating body or discipline? And and what does it mean to read queerly or to do it, to do hermeneutics as an always queer gesture? Yeah. I mean, I'd be very interested in your sense of that um, as well. I mean, I'll, I'll answer that just 
briefly, but I would really love to hear sort of your own, where you go with that. Um, I think, you know, it seems, to, and I think Sedgwick really comes kind of the closest in my personal canon. I think she, I have, um, you know, I'm just amazed constantly by her readings. And, and I think Cedric is such a good example of someone who wants to free hermeneutics of its, um, you know, authoritarian dimensions of its attempt to fix meaning in a certain way and of its, um, of the tendency to foreclose possibilities. And I think one of the ways to, to read queerly, I think would be to really open up um, texts to possibilities that um, really don't necessarily conform to our presuppositions of them, but to see them as like dynamic entities that might provoke us in ways that we don't anticipate. Um, so maybe a mode of um, receptivity in some sense, I think. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really curious what, where did you go with it or what were you thinking? You're interested in the question of hermeneutics. I know from other times I've listened to your interviews. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was really interested in the, in Sedgwick's kind of, I mean, always, I, you're so paranoid, you probably think this essay's about you, I think is kind of like a fundamental text. And I think it's, it's great. Um, and I, I was really interested in, you know, this idea of queerness, or of maybe sexuality in general, of like being open to the other, or like always having to come from the other. And I think that that's what reading is like, you are never reading. I mean, as a person who reads literary texts, like those are always coming from someone else. There's all that's all there's. So I think inherent within reading is kind of this erotic um, mingling with the other. But even I was thinking as I was reading this, like, what does it mean to read my own work? Um, and to see, you know, not only is my own work always informed by the other authors I have been reading at the time or whoever's class I'm in, or like even when I was an undergrad, like I used to have professors tell me um, that my writing always just sounded like whoever I was writing about. Um, so there was that, that trace or that stamp of the other on me. But even if I'm reading a paper that I wrote, um, which I, I just did, and I was I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I read that. But that's like someone else. That's like a different person. Um, that's me two years ago. That's me a month ago. That's whatever. So reading is always this opening onto an other that, that kind of creates this, oh my God, that creates some kind of relationship with otherness that you have to, you have to figure out. And it's always this kind of weird, uh, I don't want to put it into like, a martial metaphor. So it's, I wouldn't say it's like a battle. It's almost like a dance or something. It's this, we, I have to constellate and figure out how I am in relation to you and where do I appear. Um, and I think that's part of the fun of reading for me. Yeah. yeah. And, but the anxiety of it too. And I think, I think this is something that, you know, one way we can understand the kind of appeal of this like post critical moment. I mean, I think there's a real um, anxiety um, involved in reading because you can be surprised or you can be, um, you know, um, you have to have, you have to feel open or be open to read in a certain way. Otherwise, um, it's very hard to take something in. Um, you know, I can't read when I'm upset, yeah. you know, I'm like, I can't, you know, I'm like too, too taken up by being upset. Um, so there's a, there's yeah. a certain way that you need to be receptive to the other. Um, and I think that's very hard to sustain. And I think 
part of the way psychoanalysis has been mobilized against reading has been um, in the way that Marxism has been mobilized, you know, mobilized against it to sort of just function as we already know the outcome as a something, a, a, a unified theory that you can apply and move on. Um, and I, you know, everything has a, can be used that way. And I psychoanalysis and certainly, certainly in its earlier iterations wanted to be used that way in some sense. So it, um, there's a lot to work against, I think, um, in terms yeah. of those tendencies. Yeah, I mean, the whole, I, I, I was thinking about this for a paper last year, but um, like when you're reading a poem and, and, you, and it has a really regular meter and then at some point just like switches and that terrifying moment of like, oh fuck, I don't know how to read this. Like you, you, there's this idea that someone else is moving within you. And I, I don't know that there is this erotic dimension. There is this like, we're moving in some kind of, in some kind of formation that I, I'm not totally sure what's happening because it breaks down this idea of me as like this autonomous reading subject who's holding a book and there's no one else here. When in reality there is someone else there. And I don't know I'm thinking like the Lacanian, there is no sexual relationship. Like, there, what kind of relationship happens in reading? Yeah. Is there a sexual, I, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I think that's something related to something you were saying earlier too, about the ways that, you know, a kind of anti-humanist, anti-subject reading wants to sort of almost believe that the book emerges, like you said, from the ocean or like falls from the sky, you know, like it's sort of denial of that erotic element to it mm -hmm. also, or where would it come from? I'm, you know, um, it's not a function of language in and of itself. It's a function of sexuality being um, transmitted, um, communicated, conveyed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it is this, I mean, reading, I think people always just want it to be this really cerebral act, but it, it is bodies and pleasures or what it is. It has such a, a toll on you. I mean, I don't know, like there, I, there's so many times when I've like cried while reading for class just because it takes it it's taking over you and I think that is such a, a scary thing about reading um but that's part of its erotics it's this it's this kind of relinquishing of the self to the other yeah and the voice of the text too like how idiosyncratic every every voice is too you know mm -hmm. um we can't even talk about it without without talking about these words that convey the sort of erotic dimension of it it seems to me mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, well, I have one final question, which is, uh, what are you thinking about now? What do you, are, do you have anything you're working on specifically that you can, you know, talk about? Uh, yeah, um, I'm sort of knee deep in, um, <laughs> thinking about, um, the relationship, you know, that like stage in your thinking where you're just like reading and you don't even know what you think anymore. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm going to try to make some sense of it, but I, in how, you know, sort of at the stage where, uh, that, at that stage, but I'm, I'm thinking a lot about actually um, sort of the a little bit, um, the relationship between queer theory and critical theory. And by critical theory, I mean more like Frankfurt school type critical theory. And um, in some sense, you know, that is also the origin of a lot of queer theory, but it kind of split off into two because queer theory took on, you know, like Adorno and company, but then critical theory 
especially in Germany, you know, followed more Habermas and became the second and third and fourth generation of critical theory. And those fields really don't talk to each other um, anymore. Um, but I'm thinking a lot about, you know, Berlant's notion of cruel optimism um, in particular, which, you know, um, has a lot of people have been posting a lot about it, um, especially this summer um, when she died. Um, so people were talking about cruel optimism everywhere. And it sort of got me thinking a lot about, um, you know, how do we think about a concept like cruel optimism? How does, what is the, like, again, to use metapsychology, like what is the psychological framework that undergirds a concept like cruel optimism? Um, you know, it's using a lot of Lacan for sure um, and Adorno. Um, so trying to like deconstruct a little bit what that formulation means um, and if there are ways to, to challenge it a little bit, um, get, some, get some space um, to open up the, the phrase a little bit more, um, I think is something I'm thinking a lot about. So I would say, yeah, I mean, extending some of this work into maybe the domain of um, critical theory more broadly, in addition to queer theory. I, I'd like them to talk to each other maybe a little bit more because, you know, critical theory is having this moment now um, where it's like, oh my God, we should we should read more psychoanalysis. Like, you know, they have not been reading psychoanalysis for the past, like, you know, however many, 40 years. Um, some people have, but mostly it's all been like Habermasian communication theory. And they're like, oh, this is not so bad. <laughs> so it's like, now we have kind of like renaissance of, of psychoanalysis a little bit. And so I'm, but they're also running into some of the same debates of queer theory. So I'm sort of, yeah, a long way of, of saying that's something I'm, interested in now, I guess. Yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting. And I hope it turns into something and I can read it as soon as possible. Um, because I, I, that is, I don't know, that's something I once, once upon a time was really trying to think about. Um, especially, I don't like the Frankfurt School uh, and trying to think about their relationships with, with sexuality. Um, and, and and psychoanalysis, especially because, you know, like Marcuse was so interested in, and all of these figures were so, they were right there. Like, I don't know, you think about Germany at that time, they were all thinking at the, at the same time, in the same place. And then, I don't know, from 80 years away, there's a, it's much easier to distance them, but they were, yeah, they were all in the same place. Yeah, and asking so many of, similar questions like what's the vision of like an emancipatory subject um how do we do that um where's the repression coming from what transgression is possible so many of these questions but yeah i, I think that's partly how how i how i got interested in it yeah. yeah well i as i said i'm excited to see that come out in whatever form it does um and thank you for for talking to me this was a, a wonderful conversation um Thank you so much, Britt. I really appreciate it. You're a really generous um, interlocutor. Thank you. Um, so once again, um, I was talking to Gila Ashtor um, about her new book, Homo Psyche on Queer Theory and Erotophobia. Um, it is out, oh my gosh, who who, who published? I, Fordham University Press. Um, it came out earlier this year. Um, thank you for talking. Um, I'm Britt Edelin for the New Books Network. Until next time.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.